the fragrance of heaven, the manna unleavened. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Pioneer Broadcast. I'm John Clark, and we're going to continue our series on Romans 8.28, where Paul wrote, We know that all things work together for good to them who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. If you think that every time something bad happens to you that the devil has done it, King David has a lesson for you to learn in his story of suffering. And we want to learn it tonight as we continue our series on all things. Please stay with us and thank you for joining us. He's my rest when I'm weary In the winter He's my warmth He's the porter of my temple, cleanses every sinful stain. He's Jesus, forever the same. He's the fragrance of heaven, the manna unleavened. Song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever the same. We want to study here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, how that David sinned against God and then God, not the devil, punished David and what David said about that punishment. Isn't it a contradictory picture of Satan that if you do wrong, the devil will get you? Have you ever thought about that? I've heard that said, have you? That if you do wrong, you get in a place where the devil can get you. Listen, if we do evil, it's much more frightening to think that God will get you instead of the devil. <laughs> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the devil is the beginning of foolishness. David feared God. And we see in this story that he had good reason to do so. In 2 Samuel 11, David sent his army out to fight. He himself stayed home in Jerusalem. He sent Joab and his army eastward across the Jordan River to attack the nation of Ammon. They had abused some ambassadors that David sent there in chapter 10. In verse 2 it says, It came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent messengers to find out who she was. And they brought back word and said, She's the wife of Uriah. Now, for those of you who don't know, Uriah was a very noble and humble man. He was also a mighty warrior. He was not an Israelite. He was a foreigner who, simply in love of God, had become a Jew and wanted to walk with the Israelites and do his best for the God of Israel. And he was with General Joab fighting in Ammon. His wife, Bathsheba, was the one whom David observed washing herself. And even though he found out who she was, he sent messengers and took her. In verse 4 of Second Samuel 11, it says, And she came in unto him, and he lay with her. She sent to David later and said, I am with child. She found out she was carrying a child, which David and she had conceived. This tormented David's mind. What am I to do? How can I cover up my sin? So he came up with this plan. And verse 6 says, David sent to the battlefield to Joab, and he wrote a commandment on that piece of paper and said, Send to me here in Jerusalem, send me Uriah. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did. In other words, David just asked Uriah how the battle was going. He brought Uriah home from the battlefront, 
And David began to have this conversation, how's the battle going, how's it progressing, have you taken the capital city of Rabbah yet? And Uriah told him all the information, and then David said, okay, well, that's good, Uriah. Now you just go on home and, be in, and rest and be with your wife. I know you've been away from home maybe a month, maybe two months. You just go home and relax for a, a day or two, and then you can go on back to the battlefront. Obviously, David was trying to get Uriah to go have a relationship with his wife so that when she bare a child, he wouldn't know that it wasn't his. So that means that Bathsheba at this time was not far enough along in the pregnancy to be showing. Unfortunately, Uriah was too noble a person to go home. Look at this. In verse 8, David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. He sent down a feast, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of David and went not down to his house. And the next day the servants came to David and said, Uriah went not down to his house. And David asked Uriah, didn't you come from a long journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah, the righteous foreigner who came to Israel to trust God, said unto David, while well, the ark of God and Israel and Judah live out in tents in the battlefield, my lord Joab, the general of the army, and the, your servants, David, are encamped in the open fields. Would it be right for me to go to my house to eat, to drink, and to lie with my wife? No, sir. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now, David, that night was in great turmoil. He said to Uriah, well, stay here today, and tomorrow I'll let you go back to the battlefield. David was tormented. How was he going to cover over his sin? How was he going to keep Uriah ever from finding out how he had committed adultery with his wife? The only thing David could figure was try one more trick to get Uriah drunk, and maybe if Uriah got drunk, then he would go home. Maybe he wouldn't be so noble if he was drunk. So in verse 13, David called Uriah back and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And at evening, Uriah went out to lie on his bed with the servants of David, but went not down to his house. This was David's last hope. And so that night, he conceived of a plan to murder Uriah so that he wouldn't have to face up to Uriah and tell him he had committed adultery with his wife. He wrote a letter to Joab and told Joab in verse 15, put Uriah in the front of the hottest battle and then quickly retreat from him so that he may die, so that all the arrows will be shot at him. Now, the, the thing about this that really touches the heart is that he sent this letter giving instructions for Joab to put Uriah to death. He put the instructions in a letter, but he gave it to Uriah to take to Joab. So Uriah, unbeknownst to him, was carrying back to the battlefield his own death notice. The commandment that David gave to Joab was being carried by Uriah. God was very displeased at this. So it was accomplished. Joab did as David said. And Uriah was killed in battle. And then, after her period of mourning was over, Bathsheba was taken by David into his house to become his wife. And right after that, she bore the baby to David that he had conceived. And it was a son. And after David had suffered a little bit with this condemnation, Nathan came to him. And David listened in terror as his punishment was pronounced by Nathan the prophet. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I, not the devil, listen, this is God talking, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them unto your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, God said, and before the Son. 
David was terror-stricken because he knew that God had taken his anointing and his spirit away from Saul, turned him over to demons. And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, David. Thou shalt not die. God has seen your repentance. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house. And look, it says, The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David. And it was very sick. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. The devil didn't strike that child, people. God struck that little baby and killed it because of David's sin. God doesn't need Satan to carry out his chastisement for his people. God is the father of his own household. He can administer stripes with his own hand. He doesn't always take up a switch. And that's all Satan or demons or evil men are when they are used by God for the chastisement of one of his wayward children. That's all they are, just a switch in the hand of God. And God alone determines how many times that switch will come across your back. And he will not beat us cruelly. God is not an abuser of his children. He punishes us in measure and in justice, always. Following the death of this infant son whom David so dearly loved and prayed for and fasted for seven days, God did, as he promised, raise up evil against David from his own house. And as David fled Jerusalem for fear of his own son Absalom, Absalom is the whip that God used to chastise David for his sin. David knew that he was being chastened by the Lord, and he harbored no ill will toward Absalom. On the contrary, even though driven from his kingdom by Absalom's army and made to fight for it again, he was crushed with grief at the news of Absalom's gruesome death. 2 Samuel 18.33 says that David cried these words, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You see, David knew Absalom's rebellion was not the fault of any other than himself. It was God's hand using Absalom to punish David. Had David kept the commandments of God, he would never have had to flee from Jerusalem, from Absalom, as he had fled in his youth from King Saul. Nor would he have been tormented by the thoughts of his precious son Absalom hanging from a tree and mutilated, which is how he died. David had caused it all, and he knew it. And you see, that was half the pain. David said, Would God I had died for thee? Because David knew he was worthy of death for the things he did which caused all this. But Absalom, his son, suffered and died. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city as people being ashamed to steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son, Absalom, my son, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab and the others around David didn't understand his grief because they didn't understand God as David did. They saw Absalom as an enemy to be hated. David saw Absalom as an instrument of God's anger and could not hold his son Absalom responsible for what he himself had provoked God to do. This doesn't mean now that Absalom unwillingly rebelled, but Absalom's intentions did not determine what happened to David. Only God's intentions did. Absalom could have wanted to rebel all his life, but unless God determined that it would be good for David, he could never have achieved such a great rebellion. Do you see that? There are many people who would have loved to rebel against David. God would not allow it. God chose Absalom to allow him to have his will. You know, when David had to flee so suddenly from Jerusalem when Absalom and his army attacked, he still demonstrated that same utter reliance upon God. 
Let me read you this little story here from 2 Samuel 16. We'll start at verse 5. When David was fleeing from Jerusalem that night, he was barefooted, didn't even have time to put his sandals on, had to flee from the palace quickly. He came to a place called Bahurim. And behold, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And he came forth and cursed David as he came. And he cast stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men of David were on his right hand and on his left. And this is what Shimei said and cursed when he came out. He said, Come on out, come out, thou bloody man, thou man of Belial. A man of Belial is like calling somebody a SOB now. I mean, that's pretty, pretty tough language to call, talk to a king. It's a child of the devil. I mean, it's just, just filthy language to talk to the king. He said, The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned, and the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. Now David had some mighty men. One of those mighty men had killed 800 men at one time by himself. Another had killed 300. I mean, these men were tough. And one of them was named Abishai, the son of Zeruiah. He wasn't one of the very mightiest, but he was a mighty man. And he said to David, let me go over, I pray you, and take off his head. And Abishai could have done that, not broken a sweat. And the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Now listen, he didn't say the devil was inspiring him to curse David. He said the Lord said unto him, Curse David. And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my own bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite do it? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him to do so. David submitted to the hand of God by submitting to his instruments. David demonstrated to God that he loved him by loving his enemies. Some of the most touching verses of all the scriptures are found in the Psalms which David wrote while he was bearing these burdens. According to tradition, Psalm 51 comes from this time. Listen to this. David wrote, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a right spirit, O God. Create a clean heart in me, O God. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Yes, God had broken David's bones with suffering, but it had been done justly with care and with purpose. For though God had broken his bones, David knew God would not despise his broken heart. And so David approached God, believing him for mercy. Oh, what a difference we would have seen in David had he denied his guilt and held somebody other than God responsible for his sorrow. Suppose David had said, the devil has stirred up Absalom to fight against me. He could not have escaped hatred. And friend, you will not escape hatred and bitterness either. Unless you stop holding people responsible for how they treat you and start realizing that God is using them to purge you from all unholiness. You are not grown up into the mind of Christ until you can look at those people who are hating you and mistreating you and say from the bottom of your heart, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you can only say that when you know what God is doing. And that what He is doing is working all things together for your good. The songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's 
Praise the fragrance of heaven, the manna unleavened. He's the song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever the same. Now when we speak of spiritual warfare, we're talking about warring a warfare, if you will, in spirit rather than in flesh. We're not talking about physically fighting with human beings. And of course it is impossible physically to fight with evil spirits or even the spirit of another human being. We cannot wrestle against spirits using earthly tools. We cannot legislate morality. One can have all the laws passed that a person can imagine. Still, human nature will be wretched, blind, full of lust, greed, and evil thoughts. God alone, by His good spirit, overcomes this world's evil, and only only by the good spirit of God is victory gained in this spiritual warfare. Paul wrote a letter to his dear son in the Lord in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. He said, Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then he reminded him of something that's very important for us. He said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Now, Paul here is describing how it is with a person who is diligent in his walk with Christ. If you will be diligent in spiritual warfare, you will not become entangled with the affairs of this life. If you will be sober and watchful and diligent in Christ, you will not have time to become entangled with earthly affairs. Jesus said that becoming entangled with earthly affairs would choke out the Word of God in you. So if we are diligent in our Bible study, if we are diligent in our prayer life, if we are diligent to do those things which are good and that we know are good and we know to do them, if we will simply obey the will of God, we will not become entangled with the affairs of this life. One of the chief affairs of this life is entanglement with the political affairs of this life. But let's you and I reason together concerning involvement with politics. Jesus said those that would enter into eternal life are walking on a road that is narrow, and few there be that find it. Did you hear that? Few. Few there be that find the way that leads to eternal life. And broad is the way, and broad is the gate that leads to destruction, Jesus said, and many there be which go in thereat. Now, it makes absolutely no sense at all to use the vote in order for God's will to be done when Jesus said that those who do the will of God will be in the minority. Now, if we're seeking the will of God, if we're pursuing the things that belong to the kingdom of God, if we want to accomplish God's purposes, surely we can see that numerically we're going to be outnumbered. And if Jesus has already told us that numerically we're going to be outnumbered, why in heaven's name will we resort to majority rule? That's what the ballot box is. That's what politics is all about. The majority rules. If we win, we're in the majority and we lose with God. The ballot box is a way for the majority to rule. Jesus said the majority is on its way to hell. So why become involved in politics? But beyond that, beyond the simple reasoning capacity which God has given us, scriptures very plainly teach not to resort to earthly means of accomplishing the righteousness of God and fighting this warfare. In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote 
Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that if you see a ruler, if you see a president, if you see a senator, if you see a governor doing evil, do not resort to an earthly means to depose that person, but get on your knees and use a warfare that is worth something. Resorting to the ballot box is the world's way of fighting. Politics is an earthly warfare. It's a civilized warfare. It's more civilized than shooting at one another. It's more civilized than attacking one another with swords. It's more civilized than bombing one another. But it is still an earthly battle. It's too dirty a business for holy people to be involved in. Politics is too dirty a business for saints to become entangled with. The weapons of our warfare are mighty. Listen. There's nothing mightier than a holy person praying in the Spirit to God. Nothing. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. As I see it, we are to be the salt of the earth. The salt is the keeping power, the good influence on our society. Voting is not going to get it, people. Legislation is not going to get it. But the spiritual weapons which God has given us are powerful. Humility before God is powerful. Peace with God is a weapon. Joy is a sharp sword. The truth is a powerful weapon with God. Holiness cannot be resisted. Righteousness with God will overcome the world. We are not helpless. We are ambassadors of Christ, of a heavenly kingdom, which is not of this earth. John 18, 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But now is my kingdom not from hence. You can't pull down Satan's strongholds fighting with physical weapons. You can't pull down phys strongholds of evil and wickedness in high places if you use the same spirit the world uses when it fights. God is the one who sets men in office. Jeremiah was considered a traitor to the nation because his words to the nation were surrender to the Babylonians. These Babylonians that are coming and raping our women and destroying our children, killing our young men, burning our cities. This is God's punishment to this nation. Babylon couldn't conquer Israel unless God sent them. Jeremiah knew that. He told the people, Thus saith the Lord, if you will surrender to Babylon, God will allow you to live. If you do not surrender to Babylon, God will destroy you with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and with other horrible means of death and with captivity in the end for those of you who barely survived. Jeremiah was considered a traitor and was taken by a group of men and thrown into a pit filled with mud because they complained to the king that Jeremiah was not seeking their good but their harm. But Jeremiah understood that God is in control of the events in human history. You see, believing that God is working all things together for your good includes believing that God is in control of the nations of earth. God is the one who sets men in office. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, found this out the hard way. You remember he kept bragging about how great that he was? And he had this terrible vision that frightened him? And none of his wise men, none of his sorcerers, none of his wizards could figure it out. He finally called for Daniel. And Daniel came. And when he told Daniel the vision, it says in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel was astonished. He could not speak for one solid hour. He was so overwhelmed at what God, the warning that God was giving Nebuchadnezzar. And he pleaded with Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to humble himself, and to acknowledge the fact that he was king only because God made him king. 
You see, Daniel bowed the knee to this king of Babylon who butchered God's people. Because he knew, as Jeremiah knew, as Zephaniah knew, as Ezekiel knew, even if Nebuchadnezzar didn't, that Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. God was using him. And he pleaded with Nebuchadnezzar to repent and to acknowledge God and God's sovereignty over him. Nebuchadnezzar did well for about a year. And a year later, he forgot that terrible warning. And he was walking out on his palace. And, he, and the warning was this. By the way, Daniel said, God is going to give you an animal's mind. And you're going to go live out in the fields with other animals. A year later, he was walking out on his palace. And he was um, uh, just uh, admiring all the buildings he had, uh, had built and his mountain and his palace. And he was boasting, look how great I am and what great things I've done. And a voice came from heaven, Nebuchadnezzar. This hour is the warning come on you. And that moment his mind was changed to the mind of an animal. And they had to lead their king as he crawled out of the palace. Get this picture on his hands and his knees. And they led him out into the pasture where the cows and the goats and the sheep fed. And his beard and his hair on his body grew long. His fingernails grew long like eagle's claws, the Bible says. He became an animal in his mind, in his spirit, for seven years. And at the end of seven years, his mind returned to him again. And he was made sane by the same power that did make him insane. And Nebuchadnezzar sent a decree throughout all the world. And this is the end of the decree that he wrote. He said, At the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. And listen what Nebuchadnezzar had learned. He said, God does His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say unto God, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom and mine honor and my brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Listen to these words from Paul in the book of Romans. He said, Let every soul be subject unto the higher power, for there is no power but of God. The powers, the governments that be, are ordained of God. The men who are sitting in the Supreme Court are ordained of God to be there. That does not mean they're right in their decisions. It means that we should pray for them that they would be right. Paul said, I would that men would pray everywhere for the kings, for the magistrates, for all that are in authority. We need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our secretary of defense. We need to pray for our governor. I pray constantly for the policemen and the, the patrolmen who are, who are out risking their lives every day and every night. I pray for these people. And I pray for you that you could see that our part is to become strong in the inner man. Not to seek after earthly power, earthly prestige. Look what happens now if you get in the flesh and you begin to try to overthrow an earthly government which God has ordained to be for your good. Listen to these words from Paul in the book of Romans. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves Damnation. God has not lost control of any government on the face of the earth. And you see, it requires faith to see that. You have to look beyond the human instruments to see God working all things together for our good.
Earthly weapons promote earthly nature. Spiritual weapons promote spiritual nature. Carnal weapons produce a carnal mind. Paul said the carnal mind is not subject to God and it can't be. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life, and it is peace. And that mind of the Spirit does not resist through carnal means any evil whatsoever, because the mind of Christ knows that evil will not be overcome unless it is overcome in spirit. Keep that in mind and keep the faith which believes that all things are working together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. Creation adorning is Jesus forever. The fragrance of heaven. The man it's so good to have you with us. Thank you for tuning us in again. This is John Clark, and this is the Pioneer Broadcast. We're continuing our series on the subject of all things taken from Romans 8:28, where the Apostle Paul said very clearly, We know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, who are the called according to His purpose. Look around in your life. The situations that are difficult, that are at times embarrassing, that are hurtful, that are painful. Did you know that that is part of God's plan? That your life is in the hands of the Creator and that He has not made a mistake with your life. All things are designed by God to test your faith, to perfect you, to correct you, to lead you to the knowledge of God. And I'll be back in just a few moments to study the life and death of our Lord Jesus and His sufferings and see that this was His understanding of His life and that it should be ours too. Stay with us, won't you? The song of the songbirds, how sweetly they sing. He's the light of the morning, creation adorning. He's Jesus forever. Jesus is forever the same, and He left us an example to follow. We are to follow the faith which He demonstrated in this life. And His faith in the providence of His Father was consistent with the faith of Abraham, with the faith of Joseph, with the faith of Job, with the faith of the prophets. He was in perfect harmony concerning who was in command of his sufferings. I want to read you a scripture as we begin our study tonight on the life of Jesus concerning his sufferings. From the Old Testament first, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. Now we know that in the Old Covenant, the sacrificial animal had to be without physical blemish. Jesus was without spiritual blemish. That's how he fulfilled that pattern. But there's something even more in these scriptures I want to point out to you. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation of the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Notice, first of all, 
the requirement that the owner of the animal should personally slay his offering. And we should always remember that whenever we think or speak of Jesus as being the Lamb of God. According to the law, God would not allow you to sacrifice my animal for your sin. You had to own the animal which you offered to God. So when we speak of Jesus as being the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist did, the first time he ever saw Jesus, the Spirit of God fell on him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus was not the Lamb of men. He was not the Lamb of Satan. He was the Lamb of God. And the only way for His sacrifice for the sins of the world to be acceptable is if His owner put Him to death. God is the one who had to be the executioner of the Lamb of God in order for it to be acceptable according to the pattern which God Himself set up and demanded of Israel. Isaiah was moved to prophesy of the suffering Savior in just this manner. Please listen to this from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Thou, Lord God, shall make his soul an offering for sin. God is the one who put Jesus to grief. God is the one who bruised him. God is the one who made his soul an offering for sin. From the beginning... Jesus knew that God's will was for him to give his life a ransom for many. He was never bitter. He was never vindictive. He never held a grudge. He has never to this moment held a grudge against any person who ever hurt him because he saw beyond them to see nothing but his heavenly Father at work determining everything step by step that would happen to him. And he proved to his heavenly Father that he was trusting him to be in control of his life by living according to the will of God. That's how we demonstrate to God that we're trusting him. We demonstrate to God that even in difficult times we are trusting him by obeying him, by continuing to do good. Paul said that those who continue to do good would receive eternal life. And that's the joy that was laid before Jesus. And because God held it out for him, he endured the cross. But the point is, Jesus was God's lamb, and only the owner could put the lamb to death. Only the owner. Surprisingly, Jesus' submissive attitude actually provoked people. His submissive attitude toward his suffering provoked people. Jesus began to tell his disciples in Matthew 16 that he was going to be rejected by the chief priests and scribes in Jerusalem, that he was going to be turned over to the Gentiles, that he was going to be spat upon and killed. And Peter began to rebuke the Lord, it says, and say, Nay, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God. What's he saying there? He's saying that his pain, that his coming passion, that his being crucified were things of God. Jesus' crucifixion was of God. God had it planned from the beginning. When Jesus stood before Pilate and remained silent, when everyone was accusing him and everyone was condemning him, Pilate was angered, and Pilate said, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Jesus told Pilate even his authority 
was from the Father. You could have no power at all against me unless my heavenly Father gave it to you. And this made a deep impression upon Pilate. And he washed his hands of the whole matter and said, I am innocent of the blood of this man. I can find no fault in him at all. Pilate didn't know that his authority over the Jews at that particular moment in history was a gift from the God of the Jews. But ignorance of God's hand in all that was happening to Jesus was not reserved to Pilate. The Jews thought that the crucifixion of Jesus was their idea. They never dreamed that the plans they were fulfilling actually belonged to the father of the victim. Even Jesus' closest friends were unaware of the terrible truth they were witnessing. When Judas led the evil mob to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter drew out his sword to protect Jesus. And Jesus said to Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? He also asked Peter, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Don't you know that all I have to do is ask my heavenly Father, and he will send twelve legions of angels to rescue me? You see, when Jesus cried and sweated in labor in prayer in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane that last night of his life, and he prayed, Father, if there's any way possible, deliver me from this which I'm facing. Have you ever realized that the Father offered Jesus the opportunity to escape it? Jesus is saying so right here. He said, all I have to do is ask my Father. He has given me permission to ask Him for legions of angels to come rescue me. And they would have come, and they would have rescued Him. But the whole world would have been lost. That's the option Jesus had. Son, you can suffer and die, and offer the world hope of life. Or you can come back home to me, but everyone will be lost. And Jesus chose to suffer and die, that we might have a chance to escape eternal death. Nobody but Jesus saw beyond the angry mob and the sadistic Roman soldiers. Nobody but Jesus saw beyond the humiliation, beyond the horror of His crucifixion, to see the loving hand of God at work, providing hope of eternal life for all mankind. Neither Pilate nor the Jews not even the disciples, nobody but Jesus, knew that what they themselves were doing had been ordained by God since the foundation of the world. Nobody but Jesus knew. Luke 23 says, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Had they known what they were doing, they would not have done it. Peter said so. Later, when he was given the Holy Ghost and began to preach, he said, I know you did it ignorantly. He told the leaders of the Jews, I know that by ignorance you did this. Jesus knew that they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus knew the Roman soldiers didn't know what they were doing. Jesus knew what no one else knew, that it was God's plan. It was God's idea. God gets all the glory for it, and He gave God all the glory for it by obeying His Father and pleasing His Father and submitting Himself to the death of the cross for you and for me. It was only after Jesus ascended into heaven, it was only after the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of truth, had been sent back and filled the hearts of many that men began to grasp the truth, the awful, wondrous truth. Christ Jesus had been purposely delivered into the hands of wicked men, as the Bible says, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God outsmarted us all for our good. 
It was only when the purpose of Christ's suffering was accomplished and his followers were filled with the spirit of truth that the knowledge of what God had done dawned upon us. After the day of Pentecost, they said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. Why were they gathered together? Listen to this verse, Acts 4.28. They were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. God determined exactly how many lashes Jesus would receive. A long time before those who hated him had the opportunity to whip him. David in Psalms asked the Lord, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? You see, it was a vain thing for raging Pilate to imagine that he had power either to crucify or to set free the Son of God. It was a vain thing for the rulers of the Jews to conspire against Jesus to put him to death. It was a vain thing for Roman soldiers to guard the tomb lest the stone be rolled away. All of these were vain things because they did not have control over Jesus' life. They were pawns used by Almighty God in wisdom and in power to accomplish good for every person who would come to Him for forgiveness of sins. All of these plans of men and ideas of men were vain things because not one of them to any extent Determine the fate of Jesus. The Jews' conspiracy against Jesus was just as vain as was the guarding of his tomb. The only difference being that what the Jews conspired to do, God permitted to be done. And what the guards were sent to do, God's plan did not call for it. The fact that God allowed some men to imagine that they were accomplishing their purpose when they were only accomplishing His, speaks of the greatness of God's wisdom and power and mercy, and in no respect makes less vain the evil intentions of men. It is altogether fitting to genuine faith in Christ that we should acknowledge and confess that if God had not sent Him to the cross, there are no powers in heaven or in hell or in earth that could have taken him there. There are no powers that could have made Jesus go to the cross. Jesus is Lord. He went because he wanted to go for our sakes. It was not of man's design or purpose that Christ would be sacrificed for sin. The sacrifice of Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, according to 1 Peter 1.20. Jesus said, The Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But by whom? Paul wrote, God delivered him up for us all. John wrote, The Father sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the spirit of prophecy through the prophet said, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Lo, I come to do thy will. Oh God. So you see, what Jesus was doing was God's will. It wasn't man's will. Man thought that he was having his way with Jesus, when actually God was having his way with Jesus. Jewish people, think of this. Jewish people have been hated and maligned for two millennia by men, some men, as being responsible for the pain and suffering and death of Jesus. But Jesus said, in reference to his life, No man taketh it from me. I lay it down of myself. Nobody, no persons, no nation, no world of people are responsible for Christ's sufferings, nor could we be. 
every saint on earth should be thankful for the Jews, for it was through that people that God chose a human body for His Son to indwell. Beyond that, what the Jews, with all the world, with you, with me, what they contributed to Christ's sacrificial death was simply the need for it. They needed Jesus to die for them. We needed Jesus to die for us so that we might escape the wrath of God. All mankind, both Jew and Gentile, to Calvary's magnificent story, only contributed the disease of sin. It is God alone who provided the cure. The wisdom which Christ's atonement entailed, the love which inspired it, and the power which accomplished it are all far beyond man's little capacity to perform. Let's no longer then bicker and accuse one another of responsibility for Christ's sufferings. None of us are worthy of it. And who could doubt that if the great shepherd of the sheep could now speak with his beloved fellow Jews, his words would echo those of weeping Joseph, who too was despised by those dearest to him. And he said to his brothers who had once hated him, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day a great deliverance, and to save your lives. Jesus knew, yes, Jesus knew that the Jewish rulers made plans to kill him. He knew that Judas betrayed him, that an evil mob arrested him, and that a Gentile governor ordered his scourging and his crucifixion. He knew those things. His faith in God did not blind his eyes to the reality of Roman soldiers pounding spikes into his hands and feet. But neither did his awareness of what men were doing blind his spirit to the reality of his Father, determining moment by moment what would happen and what would not happen to his dear Son. At every point in his earthly pilgrimage, despite what everyone else thought they knew, Jesus maintained that his sufferings were things that belonged to God. But at the time, nobody but Jesus knew. It is the very soul of the gospel that what happened to Jesus at Calvary was the will and the plan of God. We should follow Jesus' example and never lose sight of that. Never lose sight of the fact that God put him to grief. It was the Lord who bruised him and was pleased with the anguish of his soul. Never lose sight of that, lest the deceiver deceive us into honoring him with responsibility for what happened at Calvary. The devil did not do that to Jesus. God did it. Satan, too, despite what he would have us to think, was merely an outwitted pawn in God's inscrutably wise plan. The glorious truth now and forever remains that God so loved the world that He gave, He gave, He gave His only begotten Son, and He accomplished His purpose for giving Him, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. May I ask you now to do the reasonable thing in the light of the great price that Jesus paid for you? Won't you come to Him and humble yourself to Him and get to know Him as a friend and as a Savior? He will forgive you of the wrong you have done. He knew that we needed Him, and that's why He died. Paul said, for when we were yet without strength, when we had no spiritual strength, when we couldn't resist the temptations and the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. Christ died for the ungodly. And God commends His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet stubborn, while we were yet rebelling against Him, Christ died for us. Won't you come to Him tonight in thanksgiving and in submission to His will. He loves you as no one else ever has or ever can. He gave Himself. He laid His life down for you. Believe in Jesus now and let God know that you're thankful for your opportunity to receive eternal life.
God bless you. Till next time. The morning creation adorning is Jesus forever.